Hello and welcome to Skynet Today's Last Week in AI podcast, where you can hear us chat about what's going on with AI. As usual, in this episode, we will summarize and discuss some of last week's most interesting AI news. You can also check out our Last Week in AI newsletter at lastweekin.ai for articles we did not cover in this episode. I am one of your hosts, Andrei Kurenkov. I just got my PhD degree from Stanford, where I studied robotics and AI, and I'm now working at a AI startup. And I'm your other host, Jeremy. Um, Jeremy Harris, I guess I have last name too. I do a bunch of AI safety stuff uh, focused especially on like catastrophic risk and that sort of stuff. And I am only the second most interesting co-host whose name starts with J, who's going to be on this episode because I'm, I'm super excited that we have right here with us in the digital flesh, John Crone, who's the host of the, the um, uh, Super Data Science podcast, which... I, like we were just talking before we started recording this episode about how podcast hosts are notorious for not listening to podcasts. Um, I actually have listened to, I, I'm, I'm the hypocrite here. I've actually listened to his podcast quite a bit. I'm a big you fan hypocrite. of it. <laughs> <Damn> it. <laughs> One of the things that I really uh, love about it, he's got these I mean, people who've done cutting edge research, like open AI people, Microsoft people. He, he talked to one of the, the key authors on the GPT-3 paper and so on. So uh, anyway, I'm, I'm going to let him, plug his show here. But uh, John, thank you so much for joining. This is just a, an absolute pleasure. It is my honor, truly. I listened to Last Week in AI religiously. So um, following on from this that hypocritical comment uh, from Jeremy, uh, I also, as the host of a podcast and lots of other balls in the air, so I'm also uh, a co-founder and chief data scientist at a machine learning company called Nebula, where we're reimagining the future of work through AI, particularly generative AI, believe it or not, lately. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I wrote a book, Deep Learning Illustrated, that was a number one bestseller. Um, I, write, I create lots of videos for my personal YouTube channel, but... Yeah, probably the thing that I'm most known for is the Super Data Science Podcast. So we have two episodes a week, every week of the year. So 104 episodes a year. It's quite a grind. And on top of that, I don't really have time to listen to podcasts. Like since the pandemic, I've been working from home all the time. I don't have a commute. I moved into an apartment building where my gym is across the street so that I didn't have to like worry about losing time there. So I I hadn't been listening to podcasts, um, which you know, again, to Jeremy's hypocrite point, it was kind of awkward because people often ask you like for recommendations. Right. And I'm like, I have no idea. I've heard of Lex Fridman. <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe check that out. Um, never really listened to it. Uh, though I know Jeremy has at least listened to that because he can do a really good Lex Fridman impression. <laughs> <laughs> not on the air, John. We said not on the air. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, but yeah, so Jeremy's been on two episodes of the Super Data Science Podcast. So he had one long episode that kind of introduced him in 2022. And in that one, it was it was an amazing experience for me in general because Jeremy and I, Jeremy and I talked for two hours before we started recording. We recorded a two-hour episode and then recorded for two uh, spoke for another two hours immediately afterward. Um, and I, you know, in that episode, we obviously talked about the AI policy stuff that Jeremy focuses on. So then when GPT-4 came out earlier this year, I quickly scrambled and I was like, 
who can I get? Like I, I had a series, a trilogy of episodes. So I did one myself where I was like, GPT-4 is here. And then I had someone come on to talk about the commercial opportunities of GPT-4, but I wanted someone else to be able to talk about the policy issues and the risks. And so Jeremy was the first person who came to mind. So that's episode number 668 of the Super Data Science Podcast, if you want to check Jeremy out there. But the reason why I mentioned all of that <clears throat> is because in that show, he I, I was like, oh, and he hosts... Uh, this uh, the podcast that he used to host. I don't even need to name it now. Um, and Jeremy's like, actually, I don't work. I don't do that show anymore. Um, I'm on this show called Last Week in AI, <clears throat> and I had a laugh because with Jeremy doing all of his existential risk stuff, I was like, is it called Last Week in AI? Because this <laughs> is like <laughs> the final week of everyone on the planet. This is like the this last week. Like <laughs> uh-huh. the, the final week, thanks to AI, brought to you by Skynet today. Um, so, uh, yeah, so Jeremy told me about it. And because of how much I enjoy speaking to Jeremy, I was like, well, I'll give it a shot. I'll find a place, you know, like, so now it's like when I'm shaving, when I get out of the shower, I like just put the pot, I listened to last week in AI and there manages to be just enough time in the week to listen to the whole show. And I've listened to every single second of every single episode oh since you were on the show in April. I never miss it. And I'm, and yeah, it, I'm, I'm a junkie for it now. Wow. wow. I didn't know it was that addictive. <laughs> it's, it, it is. And so you guys are, it's a perfect, I mean, it's a quite a different show from Super Data Science. Like Super Data Science is an interview show. You have guests on, they talk about their specialization. You get quite deep in the weeds for an hour, an hour and a half typically. With you guys, it's a completely different kind of experience that is so valuable to me as a data scientist because you cover all of the big news, all of it. You manage to jam it all in into two hours, and it allows me to then go into any meeting, whether it's with my data science team or whether it's with um, a non-technical stakeholder. And previously, sometimes I would get caught off guard by people being like, oh, have you heard about so-and-so? And I'd be like, no, like you can't keep on top of everything. And now I'm actually on top of everything all the time, thanks to you. This YouTube. is so, so funny. I had no yeah. idea why people, why anyone listened. Uh, but, but it, this is, this is good to know. <laughs> yeah, John, maybe you should write us a quick, uh, Apple review just so everyone knows. <laughs> well, you know what though? I, and I, I think the, these sorts of shows dovetail nicely into each other, right? I mean, like yeah. there's a lot of times where you get a big, you know, we don't have time to go into like the details, the weeds on how exactly, you know, llama, llama two works or whatever. We, we do that like five minute conversation, but I think that's where the, the deeper conversation comes in. And if you're going to listen to that. I do want to say, I think super data science is the place to go for it because you are a gifted interviewer. Um, I can say this like uh, in a very unbiased fashion, but it's true. Like, I mean, I think, I think I told you after those conversations, they were sort of like the deepest and most expansive that I've seen compressed into two hours of time, which I never succeeded at doing in, in my previous Thanks, podcast. Man. All right. So that was fun hearing how our podcast is awesome. Uh, and I think this will be really fun. Yeah. We haven't done a free host recording in quite a while so let's see how this goes i think the most recent one was actually jeremy was a guest on this podcast back when he was oh, not a co-host true. weird yeah with sharon so i'm coming, yeah. for, I'm coming for your job <laughs> <laughs> i love this show so much i need to be in it <laughs> well before we dive into the news just a quick segment with the response to listener comments and corrections we had one cool review on Apple Podcasts from CBKOK Han. 
I never get tired of reading these usernames. Uh, and they just said, you know, awesome podcasts. So apparently people do agree with you, John. And we had a couple comments also regarding us discussing things that we're not experts in. Some people said, well, do keep discussing kind of legal implications that just flag that you're not experts and you may, may be wrong. And I think that is probably what we're going to keep doing anyway. You're just going to keep you know, making stuff up about medicine and legal stuff and speculating. We, we did but... get rid of the stock tips section at the end of the podcast. So we, we, we will yeah. be putting that on hold. No financial advice from now no on, except that you should invest in NVIDIA, obviously. Yeah, definitely NVIDIA. Invest in NVIDIA. Well, let's go ahead and get going with the news. So first up, we have tools and apps. And the first story there is Google's AI-assisted note-taking app gets limited launch in Notebook LM. And that's the story. There's this uh, Notebook LM that Google launched in a limited capacity to a select few users. It's designed to help students organize their lecture notes and other documents. It can analyze and answer questions about the documents. It um, is aimed to kind of reduce hallucination and, and false stuff. It's still an experiment, so it's not really anything big, but it's it's one of these things, kind of a smaller scale project. And I, I think there probably are many similar tools out there. I know there are tools to sort of like ask about the PDF, you give it a PDF, you can ask questions about any document. This seems to be sort of in line with that. Yeah, it uh, it definitely is interesting as well where this lives in the workflow. Like you could see this being potentially like an integration point or a play for an integration point between many different tools. So, I mean, I was curious about where the value is going to end up aggregating in the, the AI stack. And you look at student populations, where are they going to spend a lot of their time? Well, Taking notes is probably a big thing. And, you know, if there are secondary tools, you can fold into that. This could be one of those, like, value accretion points. But, yeah, other than that, it just seems kind of interesting. Yeah, I think from an academic background, this makes me think of uh, there are tools, I think, similar to this, where you can upload a PDF and talk to the PDF, essentially. And right. if you're reading a paper, right, you can imagine how this sort of thing would be useful, where, you know, maybe you just want to upload to PDF and then, like, answer the questions you have immediately without looking for the information, get the AI to read it for you and let you know uh, how, you know, what the answers are essentially and hope that it's not hallucinating. And and hopefully this whole uh, effort to make sure that the answers are accurate, which it supposedly does by restricting itself to analyzing an answer question via the document, uh, while still drawing on some of the broader knowledge is, uh, yeah, it's nice to have something like this as opposed to just like copy pasting everything from a given document into ChatGPT and then asking questions about that. Have you uh, played around with any kind of AI tools for your own workflows, John? Oh, yeah. So... Uh, GPT-4 is my big one. That's, I mean, I'm, I'm using it every day for such a wide range of tasks, whether it, it's one of the mi most mind blowing things for me has been how quickly it allows me to create tutorials. So I do, I, um, I teach people how to do hands-on uh, with, with hands-on code demos and it is mind blowing. I can now prototype things where previously I was having to dig through stack overflow and you know it wasn't exactly the right library version, so it wasn't exactly the right solution, and easily losing half an hour or an hour just with 
random little errors. And now I just copy and paste everything into GPT-4. And it's like, oh, yeah, so let's just rewrite it this way. I can see why you did it that way. <laughs> Great job, John. But you could just do a tiny, you know, just keep on trying. And we got these tiny little tips for you. will make your life a little better. What's so your friendly. relationship like with hallucinations in that context? Do you run into them a lot? Is it like how how much of a pain are they? Never, I never encode yeah. ever, uh, and that's it's interesting for me. One of the things <clears throat> that we talked about when GPT four was coming out, uh, and and you were on the Super Data Science podcast, Jeremy, was uh, we were talking about how, like they they cited specifically the how the hallucination rate had gone down uh, by some double digit percentage, but the thing for me that. I, I don't get where that percentage came from because for me, it's night and day. Like I went from with GPT 3.5 feeling like I needed to double check everything. And now I'm in this really dangerous scenario with GPT 4 <laughs> because I never need to double check things <laughs> that in the odd instances, I guess that it does hallucinate. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not checking. Um, I mean, I'm not submitting um, like legal documentation to a court. Uh, I would definitely recommend legal advice on the show. So, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, well, you know, we since moving to this chat GPT, like bullet point, node generation system. I mean, we we do read the articles and try to make sure we don't say anything false, but some of the bullet points, you know, might be hallucinated. So we basically rely (laughs) on the listeners to tell us if the AI has led us astray. So let's hope that is minimized. Uh, But yeah, it's, I'm pretty sure it's fine. Yeah. So I, I mean, it is amazing. I think this hallucination thing is becoming less and less of a problem all the time. And I know that there are companies out there that specifically provide tools um, that allow you to, uh, to vet for these kinds of things. So uh, a company based in New York, I know the CEO, uh, this company called Arthur AI, they've developed what they call the world's first firewall for LLMs um, that is looking out for a whole bunch of things like misuse of LLMs, but also for hallucinations. And so it's is quickly becoming, as you guys often talk about the show, it's one of those things that a year ago seemed like this insurmountable problem. And now a year later, it's like, wow, <laughs> it's not that big of a problem at all. Yeah. And it is true also that like, depending on the task, hallucinations can be more or less of an issue. Like if you're, for example, doing summarization and you're actually loading a full like article or something in the context window of the model, then you're much less likely to encounter hallucination just by virtue of how much of an influence it has on next token prediction. Um, but then like, if you're just asking it zero shot, like, Hey, what, like, you know, what are some facts? much more likely to hallucinate. So yeah, I mean, it's it's such a, a weird variable landscape and like how to develop calibrated trust in these systems. I, I have no idea. And on to the next story, artists are losing a battle against AI. Glaze, a tool that's found a way to trick algorithms, is giving them a fighting chance. So this is about a team at the University of Chicago that has developed a program called Glaze that can protect uh, art from AI by cloaking the images with some very slight alterations that are not generally perceptible to humans, but actually do make a big difference for AI. And this program has apparently been downloaded over 890,000 times since its release in March. And we've already talked quite a lot about how many artists are concerned about AI, and, and there's been a lot of response and discussion. So what this program does is it can sort of watermark or mess with your images a little bit so that if someone does try to get your images and train a model 
on those images, as has been done with Midjourney and many other things, then you can sort of protect your own art in a sense that you create and post online. Uh, it does sort of kind of a known trick in a way of uh, it's been shown for many years that AI models can really understand the images way differently if you just add these little tiny changes to the you know RGB values in some way that humans cannot see but somehow does mess with AI. So that's what it looks to be doing. I'm not too sure how this plays into a training. Usually that's been done for the classification or the um, perception part of it. But still, I think this is interesting to find out about. Yeah, I think it's a lot like the preceding story where this was something that it seems like regularly on Last Week in AI, it's like I'm hearing, uh, you know, all your data are being taken away, copyrighted data issues. What are we going to do? And then, boom, all of a sudden, one week later, 800,000 people have downloaded a solution. Yeah, and, and the, the short cycle times, the short lifetimes of companies and products that this implies too, right? Like you have problem, solution, problem, solution, and you know the, the the this company i mean there's going to be a way around this eventually because this is basically a kind of adversarial vulnerability that's being exploited so then you imagine robustness training like the the arms race kind of continues and just this this endless ping pong um i'm i'm so curious about what this does in the long run to like the the ecosystem of startups and what it means to invest in a startup knowing that like they might have a massively fast boom bust cycle for all we know um mm. anyway, just a really interesting dimension of the the whole race here yeah, for me, from a bit of a nerdy perspective, I think it's interesting, you know, if you do have this input that's slightly altered and what you do with altering these RGB values is you kind of put it outside the usual distribution of images, which is why AI kind of freaks out. Uh, and it's interesting for me to think, like, if you have these sorts of images in the training data, can you then detect with a trained model if this right. image was in the training data, right? Can you kind of reverse engineer and find out, oh, you copied my data without my permission. I'm going to sue you now. It feels like that's something we should be capable of doing. Um, and then, as you said, you know, if someone wants to steal people's data, they'll have to mess with the model output somehow to make it impossible to understand. So part of this evolving battle that uh, is has been going on and will keep going on as things keep happening. And moving on to applications and business here, we have Meta and Microsoft release Llama 2, a language model for commercial use. That distinction is really important uh, because Meta, or sorry, yeah, Meta, that's right, kind of released Llama 1 or just Llama a while back. Of course, this was for a time the most performant open source language model there was, and it got leaked. Basically, they were just going to release it to the research community, got leaked more broadly on 4chan, and people just, anyway, down, downloading it and building off it. And now they're saying, hey, we just collabed with Microsoft to put together this thing and you can use it commercially. The subtitle of this article is, quote, the open source AI model puts an emphasis on responsibility, which like seems almost like a contradiction in terms, like it, like just just in the context that like you're open sourcing this model that like there is no theoretical way to understand the performance like envelope of the system and the full range of capabilities. But like, you know, relative to other open source models, it is cool that they've put in a lot of effort to do things like red teaming. So they actually brought in uh, testers, external partners in particular, 
two, look at the performance of the system and kind of see how it can respond in some cases problematically to different prompts, uh, looking at jailbreaks and that sort of thing. And um, so I think that's an interesting question. They don't say it on their launch website, but apparently was tested by external partners. And I'd be really curious to see who those partners were specifically. Um, and then maybe as a last note, really interesting to note this like meta Microsoft collaboration here. Uh, seems like the advantage for Microsoft is in making this available through their Azure AI catalog to use with some of their cloud tools. Um, so that's kind of interesting. Uh, but anyway, so a bit of a surprising access, I'd say, the, the meta Microsoft thing here. Yeah, I agree. And I think there's a lot to discuss here, right? So we've discussed many open source projects in the last couple of months that have had Llama as sort of a base uh, component, and none of those you could use for commercial applications. So the big deal right away is a lot of the code that's been written, a lot of the models that's been generated, now you can use them uh, you know, as companies. And that will just mean that there's even more work that gets done on top of all that. So that's one. Two is that the license actually is not entirely open source. So there's a special license here. Uh, it does preclude uses that are, let's say, bad. So there's you know all the usual things of don't use it for illegal activities, don't use it for like nuclear weapon development or something like that. Uh, and there's some kind of funny things in there, like you know if you have over 700 million monthly active users, you're not allowed to use it for commercial applications, which is basically like, if you Google, you're not allowed to use Llama 2. But every, everyone else, all the companies that are not like a billion dollar company, go ahead. So uh, yeah, what what's, uh, seemed interesting to you about this, John? Yeah, I mean, not just billion, but trillion dollar company. That like 700 million is really funny that like it is like you can almost see exactly like you could figure out exactly what companies they decided to cut out with that specific 700 million MAU threshold where you're, um, it's really funny. Um, but yeah, that's not going to impact most of our listeners. Um, so I, I mean, this is for me, this is the most exciting story of the week for sure. Um, and I spent a lot of time yesterday um Yes, yesterday at the time of recording was when this was announced. It was a huge deal for me and my data science team. Uh, so at my company, we use open source LLMs. Uh, they need to be commercially licensable. So previously, we had been relying on uh, models like Databricks, Dolly 2.0, uh, open source uh, family of models. And uh, that was great. There are still some reasons why you might want to consider other open source families that are commercially licensable. So yes, now Llama 2 is commercially licensable. The the number of uh, models that they released is not as big as some of the other uh, is not as wide a range as some of the other open source LLM model families. So uh, Llama two is being released at least initially with a seven billion, thirteen billion, thirty four billion, and seventy billion uh, parameter uh, models. And there could be a lot of applications out there. At least in in MySpace for sure. There's some specific tasks where three billion is way more than enough. And then that just means you can quantize a model like that, have it run on a CPU. Um, and then so you're really cutting down your costs of serving these models in real time to your users. Once you make that jump to 7 billion, it can be harder to quantize and get that down on a CPU. Um, so that's, you know, that's uh, one kind of interesting thing here. Um, it is also interesting that you have to apply to get access to it still, although that process is really easy. We got it like inside an hour. 
Um, so that was um, a nice relief. Um, so for listeners out there, there's just a form on the official Meta AI Llama 2 page, uh, really quick form. You can get access seemingly basically immediately. Um, so I don't know what they're filtering for there. Um, just just at google.com. Yeah, 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 exactly. That's right. <laughs> work email. Ooh, sorry. That one's not going to work. Um, and yeah, the other really cool thing, which you can check out on the Llama 2 page is they something that we talk about a lot on, on my show, on Super Data Science, as well as on uh, this show on Last Week in AI, is this ability to benchmark models against each other. So there have been in recent weeks on Last Week in AI, you guys have been talking about um, the Falcon model in particular and how that model um, was <laughs> up until today um, the the top open source model uh, that was commercially licensable. And now, at least, I mean, this is meta publishing the results. So there's that grain of salt to take with it. But they publish on a huge range, on a dozen range of benchmarks. And each of those benchmarks is an aggregate score over a whole bunch of sub benchmarks, a whole bunch of different tests. And even the Llama 2 13 billion parameter model seems to be comparable to Falcon 40 billion parameter model on most of these benchmarks. And it's comp and then there's also this uh, 70 billion Llama 2 model, which then is now, it seems, the state of the art in open source, commercially licensable LLMs. So if you're looking for the most powerful option for you out there and you're not worried about compute costs, then the 70 billion parameter Llama 2 seems like the place to start. And in general, I mean, I was saying to my data science team in our standup right before this meeting today, I was like, you know what? We should be spending some time making sure that the models that we were fine tuning before on Dolly 2.0, let's now do that on Llama 2 because it seems like it's a much better starting point. Um, and it's actually one thing that's really interesting on top of all of this is that this is also a huge big step relative to the original Llama because remember yeah. all of these things like Dolly 2.0, Vicuña, um, and I loved when a, a listener came on and corrected your pronunciation of that because he was driving <laughs> me crazy. But because I'm always like shaving my head when I'm listening to you guys, I'm like, by the time I get out of the bathroom, I forget to email you. But yeah, Vicuña. Um, so all of those architectures, those were taking the Llama base model, which wasn't instruction fine-tuned and instruction fine-tuning it. But now this Llama 2 is instruction fine-tuned yeah. and it seems like they used a really great training data set to do that. Yeah, there's, uh, I think from a technical perspective, some other things to note. So it's more performant. It's, of course, largely the same architecture, but it is now trained on 2 trillion tokens. Uh, so that's, I think, a bunch more training data, essentially. And we've seen that just training the same model for longer tends to be pretty important. It also has double the context length. So now you can enter uh, 4,000 tokens, which is still not super long, but that's, I think, comparable with maybe ChatGPT 3.5 or sort of the earlier GPT-3 variants. Yeah. And yeah, it was trained on 40% more data. And yes, has this uh, Lama 2 chat variant that's been trained at data with over 1 million new human annotations. So they really curated a lot of data specifically for this chat use case. And uh, yeah, I think I agree that that is another thing that's worth noting. That's a pretty important detail here. And actually, one question on the practical side, because uh, for people who are actually like doing this, 
I was going to say at home or at work. John, how do you decide? Like, you know, there, there's a new model coming out. Obviously, in this case, like Falcon was a state of the art 20 minutes ago. So you might be jumping from Falcon to Llama 2. But like this stuff takes time. You know, the APIs aren't exactly the same. They have weird kind of anyway, issue, the issues are different between models. How do you make that call that like, OK, we're now going to make that lift. We're going to invest in switching over because of this change in the state of the art. Yeah, exactly. So all these different kinds of technical considerations come into play. So um, the context window doubling in this case, that's a huge deal for us. So like one of our tasks, um, well, actually a lot of our tasks. So we're often working with job descriptions and uh, people's uh, resumes. And so these are long documents. And so oftentimes we were running into issues with that um, 2000 token window. So we're like, okay, this is doubling relative to those other um, fine-tuned models that were state of the art 20 minutes ago, as you say, like Vicuña and Dolly 2.0. So we're like, okay, um, this seems like a really good point. And actually I couldn't even use Vicuña because Vicuña was based on Llama 1 and Llama 1 was not commercial, commercially licensable. So that, like even that wasn't something I could use. So actually in terms of <clears throat> the whole universe of possible open source, commercially licensable um, models, it's while there are hundreds out there, it's through listening to a show like this, frankly, like like last week in AI and, and keeping an eye on Twitter, you get to see what are the really big new model launches that are moving the needle. And then from those, okay, I've got to check all these things. Can I do commercial uh, licensing with it? Uh, or does it have free commercial use? Um, can I fit um, a lot of my documents into this model? Is the, is the context window large enough? And are these models small enough for me to be running efficiently? So Falcon for me was a non-starter because I know that with a 3 billion or 7 billion uh, parameter Dolly 2.0 starting point, when I fine tune that to our specific tasks, it absolutely crushes it. I mean, it, it is it, like we compare side by side in a Vicuña-like way. So famously in the Vicuña blog post, they do this, they have GPT-4 rate on a scale out of 10 the outputs on, a, on specific benchmark tasks. And so we do that internally. We do that internally for comparing uh, different architectures against each other. We also use it to compare how to evaluate how our model is performing over training. So in our held out evaluation data, as our model trains, in order to make sure that it's not overfitting, we're using those assessments, those Vicuña-like assessments. So um, I've gone off on a long tangent here and I can't no, even remember really where I started. I think we could do a whole episode on this. <laughs> so we're going to be wrapping up. I have just yeah, a yeah, couple yeah. more things to note because there's a lot going on here. So another interesting part of a license is that you cannot use it its outputs to improve another large language model, right. which is kind of a funny thing. We've seen people Not the first in time. many of these open source things use GPT-4 outputs to then instruction tune. So this is not allowed. Again, targeting Google and OpenAI probably. And then there's even more. So in addition to the uh, announcement of this release, they also uh, Meta also announced that they're doing this open innovation AI research community which uh, you can apply to, and this is a program for academic researchers where uh, these academics will have a chance to contribute to this whole research agenda and work to develop uh, some solutions for responsible and safe AI practices. And then on top of that, they also announced this NAMA Impact Challenge where they want to work 
with uh, public, nonprofit, and for-profit entities to use Llama 2 to address environmental, education, and other important challenges. So yeah, Meta is really pushing on this kind of AI leader in a sort of non-commercial sense almost, and it's an interesting approach. Yeah, open source is definitely the axis that they're choosing to differentiate themselves here. Yeah, and I'll let us move on to another topic really quickly, but there's just a, just a couple other really quick notes on this Llama 2 that I want to make sure people know about, which is that um, on everything that we've been talking about with these benchmarks, these are natural language benchmarks. On code tests, math tests, Llama 2 actually isn't performing particularly well. So they obviously, they, they decided to just focus on natural language. Um, and then there are really cool things that they've done in terms of using state-of-the-art reinforcement learning from human feedback. So you can read about that in the paper, but they were, they were really clever about um, handling safety, helpfulness trade-offs that Anthropic has been really helpful in um, dealing with. And I, Jeremy's talked about it on the show before. And then they also, they've used a new uh, method called ghost attention um, for multi-turn consistency. So when you have long chats with Llama 2, um, apparently uh, this new ghost attention method is really good for having that uh, consistency over a long conversation. So yeah, those are my kind of key things on Llama 2. And I, I, from my perspective, now we can move on. <laughs> wow, I got to keep, now I have flash attention, page attention. Now we have ghost attention. <laughs> just so more, there, there's another one we'll be covering today too, yeah. a new transformer variant. So yeah. Yeah. It's funny. Okay, moving on. We have actually a couple stories that are sort of looking at the state of the AI field for AI jobs, which I think is interesting. So we have US companies are on a hiring spree for AI jobs, and they pay an average of $146,000 a year. That's pretty much what the story says. There's apparently 7.6 million open jobs in June that involve AI, although I don't know that those are heavily AI. There is uh, AI tax manager roles. There is, uh, as you can imagine, just a lot of different uh, jobs that include AI as one of the things that you might need. And then related to that, there's some other cool stories here. So from Stanford, there's a, a little, oh, sorry, from sfstandard.com, there's a story of San Francisco companies got half of the world's AI funding so far this year. So that's pretty notable. Yeah, nearly half of all the funding for AI and machine learning in the first quarter of 2023 went out to SF out of the 20. Uh, 22.7 billion, 11.1 went to San Francisco-based firms. With of course OpenAI receiving, you know, 10 billion. So maybe not exactly fair, but still, you know, it is. I would say SF does seem to definitely be sort of a big hub of AI startups, from what I can see so far. Yeah. I think it's also like, yeah, I'd, I'd be curious about how that compares to startups more generally, because obviously post-pandemic, San Francisco has kind of been picking up again uh, as people have moved, I think in many cases, back from Austin and like back from Florida to San Francisco again. And so I'd be curious how this stacks up compared to more kind of generic AI or generic startups. But uh, yeah, pretty notable figures for sure. Yeah, if you want a fun factoid to bring up at a party, by the way, there's now this term called Cerebral Valley. Not the best term, uh, I don't think, but uh, apparently a neighborhood in SF, I think Hayes Valley, 
there is a bit of a concentration of people working on AI startups. So there's this new Silicon Valley type term, Cerebral Valley. And there was a pretty nice article in the New York Times covering sort of a whole movement and how, you know, you have all of these Bay Area like co-ops and people living and doing their Bay Area things. So uh, it's, it's kind of a fun thing. And speaking of startups and founders, there's uh, another interesting article that I also just will slot in here, which is that 65% of top AI companies have immigrant founders. So this is a new study based on the top 50 US AI companies on the Forbes AI 50. And that's pretty much the uh, stats there. So 28 of the 43 uh, so that's 65% of top AI companies were founded or co-founded by immigrants. 70% of full-time graduate students related to AI are international students. 18 of 43 of top US-based AI companies have a founder who studied in the US as an international student. I mean, these are big numbers. And I will definitely say from my experience, that does seem to be the case. And incidentally, I'm also myself an immigrant to the US. Yeah, and, and Jeremy and I are both Canadian and have commercial interests in the U.S., so, uh-huh. Very true. Yeah, that's a good point. I keep forgetting Fitting that. Jeremy from Toronto. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so next we have Elon Musk unveils his company, his AI company, XAI. And so this is a story that um, has been in the making for quite some time now. Uh, the, you know, the story kind of starts with Elon Musk talking, I think, on an interview with like Tucker Carlson or something on Fox News about how he's worried about essentially the uh, political bias in some of the language models like ChatGPT that were being make, made available. And he was going to you know, set up uh, whatever it was, TruthGPT or whatever his alternative was. And uh, so his framing of this is, number one, he's really concerned about catastrophic risk from AI. Um, though his model for that risk is really quite unclear, he seems to feel that the solution is to create an AI that is maximally truth-seeking, that is just very curious about the universe and wants to learn more. And the hope is humans are interesting enough that such an AI would not want to wipe us out. Um, so here he is launching this company on this premise. Um, and it, they've got a very bare bones landing page for right now, but there are 12 members that are listed on the website uh, as part of the team, including Elon Musk himself. And they include researchers who spent time at OpenAI, DeepMind, Google Research, Tesla, like all these companies, and um, notably Igor Babush uh, Babushkin, who is a former senior AI researcher at DeepMind, um, mentioned a while back that Elon had reached out to him. He's now on that team officially. And um, so I think this is also notable given that from everything I've been hearing, they are absolutely a live player in this race. There are a lot of companies that you know, I've talked about on the podcast I'm sort of skeptical of just because of the amount of capital required to invest and compute to actually compete at the frontier. Um, you know, you can look at companies like, well, I'm, I'm not going to name them, but anyway, they're, they're companies that like don't quite have that access to capital that you might need to compete with an open AI, to compete with a Google. Um, certainly, XAI seems like they are up there. They're, you know, they bought well over 10,000 GPUs, it seems. I can't remember if it was A100s or H100s, but they are like very much, uh, it seems, a serious horse in the race. And um, the last thing I'll mention as part of the tee up here, so they are currently... As I understand it, they don't have anyone on their team who is um, particularly AI alignment focused. And that I consider to be a little concerning. Um, when you're pushing capabilities this hard, this fast in the context of this race with a thesis that frankly kind of um, 
uh, is at odds with uh, the un technical understanding that we have of AI safety at the frontier. Like it does not seem like it is that simple to solve the alignment problem. Just say, oh, make the AI seek truth. Like there are many deep problems that we've gone into in other episodes, but they have to do with like inner alignment and power seeking that are not resolved by this. And so you would hope that people, you know, in this context would be aware of the deeper issues in technical AI safety. They are being advised by Dan Hendricks, though, who currently serves as the director for the Center for AI Safety, which is famous for releasing this 22-word statement on AI risk being up there with bio risk and other forms of catastrophic risk. So they have, you know, some kind of overlap with the AI safety community, but uh, that seems a little ambiguous right now, and it would be great to see them make some more moves in that direction in the future. Look, Jeremy, this is very, very simple. I don't know what you're talking about. This is very simple. So if you want to have the truthiest, the right. most truthful LLM out there, you call it Truth GPT, done. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So that was easy. And then the other thing is you mostly train it on truths with a capital T from Truth Social. And then you're guaranteed to have a very, very truth-filled platform. Very, very truthful. I, I withdraw uh, the comment. You're, you're right. Yeah. I'm sorry. I don't well, know. Now you can on, train on, it on, on, uh, <laughs> on data from Twitter, you know, data from X. Uh, no, yeah. So, not too much to note on here. It's not even very clear what the plan is. As far as it's possible to tell, they pretty much are trying to be an open AI. So, train their own large language model, be an open AI or an anthropic, of which there aren't many companies that actually do deliver kind of the best in a class for chat GPT or things like that. So they do need, you know, billions of dollars and, and a big team to do that. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, personally, and I think a lot of AI people tend to not take Musk very seriously. He's been, you know, promising the self-driving car stuff for like a decade and everyone kind of knew that it's way harder than he says it is. He famously signed that you know six-month moratorium on doing large language model experiments less than six months ago, and now has founded this. Uh, so yeah, I think it's very it's pretty vague, but definitely we'll be seeing attempts at competing with OpenAI from this. It looks like one of the externalities I'm I'm kind of concerned about here is you know. So far, this whole issue has managed to avoid a lot of the political polarization that's haunted other areas. And so I, I hope, like Elon Musk has been great about calling out the risk category generally. Um, the risk model we can disagree about. Uh, that's, you know, I, I, I think I would based on what I've heard. But certainly, like, yeah, this is something that I, I worry about is like, is the best way here actually to politicize this? Like, I... I don't think it is, <laughs> but uh, I guess we'll we'll find out. Hopefully, uh, hopefully it goes well. <laughs> yeah, and just as a quick note uh, for anyone that's particularly interested in alignment, from what I've read, you know, there was a bit of a discussion on the announcement uh, on Twitter Live, our Twitter Spaces, where Elon was asked about. You know, what is the alignment strategy? He sort of routed off this idea of making the AI maximally curious to make it, you know, nice and good to humans. Uh, not really, you know, didn't name, as far as I know, any of the standard kind of current best in class practices from, let's say, uh, Anthropic of constitutional AI or whatever. So, yeah, it's, it's pretty vague right now. And it, the alignment 
angle doesn't seem to be, even though Elon Musk has been kind of saying, oh, AI is going to be, could destroy us all, et cetera. There's not much emphasis on it that I've seen. Yeah. And like, j just to spell this out explicitly, like um, one of the, the core issues with this strategy is like, even if you could define a goal that seemed safe to pursue by an arbitrarily intelligent system, let's say that is curiosity. It's not at all clear to me that that is a safe goal for something to pursue, but okay. Let's say it was. We don't actually know how to cause that goal to be internalized by an AI system. That is the inner alignment problem. That is literally unsolved. And until that is solved, the default course, it seems, for these systems is power seeking. So like there are deep fundamental questions that need to be answered before you get to say like, oh, cool, like what fun loss function should we give or what fun objective, ob objective should we give the system? Anyway, that's just kind of like Jeremy getting off his soapbox now. <laughs> nice. All right. So this is from a newspaper that Jeremy always calls WAPO on air, but to me, it's got to be WAPO. I mean, it's Washington Post. Uh-oh. My Canadianism um, is showing. <laughs> from the Washington Post. Um, <laughs> and this one's called OpenAI Strikes Deal with Associated Press to Pay for Using Its News in Training AI. Yeah, so that's pretty much the story. OpenAI has struck a deal with Associated Press to pay for access to its archive of news stories to train its AI chatbot. The AP Associated Press will receive licensing fees and access to OpenAI's technology for experimentation. Uh, as far as I know, first of its kind kind of deal, and I think one that we'll see a lot more of with these kinds of media companies where eventually, presumably, OpenAI will have to pay to use New York Times stories and you know the Atlantic stories and whatever for training. We've discussed how in some of these uh, giant data sets like Common Crawl, if you look, a lot of it is actually news of this type, like a big chunk of this you know, gigantic crawl of the whole internet is, is Wikipedia and, and news. So I think this could be kind of setting a precedent for a lot more of this sort of thing. Yeah, it kind of makes you wonder what the legal status of those data sets like Common Crawl, like the pile and so on is going to turn out to be going forward. Like, are we going to see retroactively like all models trained on this or like have some amount of legal exposure? It's kind of we're in that weird, fuzzy gray area now. And uh, anyway, this is definitely an interesting precedent setting move for sure. And speaking of that, the next story is actually that Shutterstock expands deal with OpenAI to build generative AI tools. And it's pretty similar. So there's this deal that over the next six years, OpenAI will license data from Shutterstock, including its images, videos, and music, and metadata for training. And then Shutterstock will gain priority access to OpenAI's latest technology and editing capability. Shutterstock is where you can go and get stock images and also edit them and do various things. So yeah, it seems also sort of similar in nature and yeah, similar to something that other services like this uh, that provide stock images and images, et cetera, that you can license will probably also make deals with OpenAI and so on. 
Yeah. And the legal side getting more and more expert. We, we talked last week, I think, about Adobe, right? And how they were indemnifying anybody who used their image generation model because they were saying, hey, it was trained on our data that we owned. So this is really starting. I feel like we're starting to see so many stories pop up that are just straight up like, who owns the copyright? Who owns this? Like, if we had to come up with a theme of the week or a theme of the month, that kind of feels like it's congealing into one for sure. Okay, and on to projects and open source. We don't have that much to cover this week. Uh, Llama is sort of open source, but it, it, Llama 2 is, I don't know what they released to code actually. But anyway, we have one story that I think is quite in- interesting. We have Warm GPT, the generative AI tool cyber criminals are using to launch business email compromise attacks. So if you know anything about hacking, you know that hackers tend to have a sort of toolbox of software that they use they don't just like write all their own code there are these sort of things that include a lot of the usual types of attacks and it turns out that there has been this tool called warm gpt for a while it's not based on chat gpt it's actually based on gpt j from elifer so it's not you know a, a very sophisticated tool let's say but uh yeah it's it's written specifically to launch business email compromise attacks and you can just get this tool, you know, uh, from various websites and so on, and have LinkedIn it write these emails for you. Yeah, <laughs> no, uh, we we will not be linking to the model. Please don't use AI to hack anyone, listeners. Uh, but yeah, this is just an example of what I imagine will be many such kind of tools that will be online soon enough. Actually, if all listeners, it would be really helpful if we could just use your home computer and your IP address as like a, a nice starting point for a lot of these attacks. Um, so yeah, there's a there's a link <laughs> in the show notes. Join our uh, your IP addresses. <laughs> I, one thing is just kind of minor. They, they say that maybe unsurprisingly, it's like it was trained on a wide range of data sources, but they're not, and especially uh, like malware related data, um, but they are not telling anyone what the training process was, um, unsurprisingly, because this is like super, super not open source at all. Hmm. One thing to note is uh, if you are to try and use uh ChatGPT, for instance, to write a business email compromise attack or something or phishing, it does have presumably in a training data, you know, I won't do stuff that's bad. I won't write emails that pretend to be someone else so that you can include this link that's bad. So in general, it's not supposed to do that. But as we discussed, I think a little bit, there's this whole category of inputs known as jailbreaks that basically make it so the language model does what you want, even if it's supposed not to based on a string data. So in theory, you can use ChatGPT to generate you know, phishing and so on, even if it doesn't want to, if you just word it carefully, like I'm writing a play in which this character is writing an email it will just ignore any ethics and so on and, and just do whatever you want. So with this, I don't know that it's needed because this is based on GPTJ. I think it's probably even fine-tuned specifically for this task. But uh, yeah, I think with some of these open source things like Llama and uh, Falcon, it, I, it probably won't be too long until similar tools are developed. So scary world now with... AI writing phishing emails. 
next we've got, oh, sorry, next we're moving on to research and advancements. And our first uh, article here is Meet Long Llama, a large language model capable of handling long contexts of 256 tokens. So context window, really, really big deal. We talked about it earlier, actually, just today when we were talking about what 256 K tokens. Oh, sorry. 200... <laughs> yeah, 256 is not a, a long context. <laughs> it's just a factor of a thousand. Not a big deal. Yeah, that's short llama. That'll come out next week. Um, <laughs> so we have long llama. Yeah, th this idea that essentially, you know, how much how much text can your model actually like read and then leverage in order to make its predictions in the moment? And they make a couple of really kind of interesting contributions in this paper, not least of which is to uh, build a model and test a model that shows an ability, and we'll get into what we mean by an ability, but an ability to read like 256,000 uh, uh, kind of tokens at a time or use them. Um, so one of the key things that they highlight here is that like during the training process of a language model, the model will learn to associate certain uh, keys, they're called, in the input, like usually there's like words in the input or tokens in the input, with corresponding values, um, which are like predictions or outputs usually. But the challenge is that if you have a really large uh, input, you have a, usually a large number of completely irrelevant tokens, and there's a tendency for the model to incorrectly kind of tag certain keys or associate certain keys with irrelevant values and just confuse them. And so the situation gets worse the more information there is in the context window because there's a greater chance that the model will kind of like get almost distracted by irrelevant information in the input. And so that's the term that they invent here. They call it the distraction issue. And this means essentially a whole bunch of irrelevant informa information in a prompt that like causes the model to get confused. And they specifically train the model using this technique called contrastive learning to, uh, to explicitly like figure out, okay, what is relevant and what's not relevant in my, uh, in my input here to generate my output. So they kind of tackle this problem head on. They have a bunch of um, modifications they make, memory attention layers that are given access to an external memory database during inference to do this. But the bottom line is that they end up inventing like a kind of new variant on the transformer uh, that they call the focus transformer. And yeah, they like they do this really interesting test where they see like what is the actual effective context window length that this model can handle. And they use a test called the passkey retrieval task to, to verify this. So the way this works is you feed the model a prompt where you tell it Okay, model, like here's an important, I'm about to give you some really important information that's going to be hidden in a whole bunch of irrelevant te text. I'm going to quiz you about the, the important information later. And then it puts a whole bunch of irrelevant text in the middle. And then it goes after that irrelevant text, and there could be hundreds of thousands of words worth of irrelevant text. It writes, the passkey is passkey, remember it. And then it, it puts a whole bunch more kind of filler text, and then it asks after that, what was the passkey? And so you're basically checking, like, can the model remember, retrieve that passkey from the giant wad of, of crap that was in between? And what they find is that with this architecture, they're actually able to do this pretty effectively all the way up to 256,000 tokens worth of, uh, of prompts. So pretty impressive achievement, again, built on top of Llama, so all the kind of open source implications that we've been discussing here. 
Yeah, this is pretty neat. We discussed a couple other stories last week about long contacts. So this is a bit of a trend. There was also long net and, and some other things. This one has a few notable uh, good qualities. So first of all, this general idea of using some kind of retrieval type mechanisms during training means that you don't actually need to change anything about the architecture. It's more of the just approach to training that's revised. So you can take any existing large language model architecture like Llama and fine tune it and basically make it better at long context uh, without, you know, changing the initial model, which means that you don't need to retrain you know, everything from scratch, which is super expensive. I mean, training these large language models costs literally millions of dollars, right? Because of how much data and a computer it is. And yeah, of course, as usual with academic papers, they have nice results that show that it works really well. Uh, it works better than just standard uh, fine tuning. It still work, works well on short term stuff. So. Yeah, it's, it's another kind of example of really much, a lot of progress in scaling to long context, which is really important. Like if you're dealing with like question answering about a book or a textbook or anything, 256K tokens is pretty much a book's length as opposed to a few thousand tokens, which is, I don't know, a few pages or some number of pages. So this really does mean that the models are a lot more powerful. And on to the next research story, we have a mixture of experts meets instruction tuning, a winning combination for large language model. So sparse mixture of experts and what is a standard kind of technique that adds learnable parameters to any type of model really without increasing inference costs. Basically, it's like you have a few sub-models within your bigger model, and then those sub-models get activated for specific types of inputs. So that means that when you do inference, when you actually produce an output post-training, you don't use more weights, you don't do more compute, but you do effectively have more weights. And we've discussed with, with, with GPT-4 that the big kind of revelation about its architecture was that it was using mixture of experts with eight kind of copies of, uh, not copies, but like eight 200 billion parameter models or something, right? So this is a paper that kind of evaluates that whole idea of what if you have mixture of experts combined with the standard figure of instruction tuning, taking a base language model and then fine tuning it to do well on this kind of chat type thing where you want it to not just predict language, but also to be good at chatting and kind of doing what the user wants it to do as opposed to just doing autocomplete. And uh, yeah, this is an empirical study that shows that having mixture of experts combined with instruction tuning outperf outperforms uh, dense models. And it's an important, you know, report, important finding because it does allow you to scale to larger models as happened with GPT-4. And if it is a general principle, presumably a lot more language models will start using this mixture of models technique, uh, mixture of experts technique like GPT-4 does. 
This is huge. And I'm glad that you, you called up the, uh, the GPT-4 comparison there, which is like an obvious thing to mention here, because although it's only rumored, it seems like based on the sources of these rumors that it's reasonably likely that it is true that GPT-4 works on this MOE model. And it's, it's huge because as we, we want our LLMs to be as powerful as possible, but we don't want our LLMs to be as expensive as possible. <laughs> so... With a mixture of experts, it's you're getting the best of both worlds because you can have this kind of meta model that sits on top, not meta with a capital M, <laughs> uh, lowercase m, um, that is like routing, okay, who's the best expert? So maybe you have, I don't know, like GPT-4, I think it's rumored to have like a dozen of these uh, expert submodels. So the... The meta model can say, okay, who's my best expert for this kind of uh, request, for this kind of prompt? And then it routes the order to that specific expert. And then, again, using, let's say there's a dozen of these submodels, then you only need to really use a 12th a of all of your possible architecture for handling that one task. And so, you know, you're potentially reducing the cost at inference time by about whatever, 11 twelfths. <laughs> I'm not going to try to make that into a percentage in my head. Um, and so, yeah, it makes a huge amount of sense. And it also makes a huge amount of sense to pair it with instruction tuning. And thanks to Hugging Face, as usual, for providing us with relatively easy tooling uh, and unbelievably fast, uh, you know, bringing this tooling to the masses so that we can all take advantage of mixture of experts and instruction tuning together. This is definitely where the space is going. Yeah, I think one of the interesting um, aspects of this too is it helps us explore, you know, where the the trade offs are because it's always tough to do apples to apples comparisons with mixture of experts models and like fully dense models that are basically just one model that sees every single sample that you feed in, processes every single output. Because um, you know, in, in this case, during training, for instance, like you're the only one expert sees a given sample at a time. And so the individual experts functionally are being trained on less data. And one of the consequences of that is overfitting. There's a risk that each individual expert is a little bit more fragile to, to like memorizing things that it's seen in the data rather than learning generalizable facts about the world, which is kind of what you'd expect if this was a human system. You have 12 different experts, right? And they all kind of know their fields really, really well. Eventually, they start to just like memorize facts, but they don't learn to generalize. And so that's kind of part of the trade-off here. And I think it's especially interesting through that lens. You know, like one of the main discoveries in the paper is it seems like these mixture of experts models, not only do they benefit a lot from instruction fine-tuning, but they benefit more proportionately than do dense models. So like, why might that be? Well, instruction fine-tuning is this very general purpose training. You're, you're not training the model to, to solve a specific task. You're giving it a, a wide range of different tasks and causing it to essentially think as if it's an instruction following robot or, or model rather than kind of getting really into the weeds on any specific thing. So in a sense, this might kind of give a bit of, a bit of generality to each individual expert. I'm speculating here. Um, but what they certainly find is if you instruction fine tune, MOEs do much better. Mixture of experts models do much better. They, they benefit more from it than, uh, than these dense nets. And so that's kind of being flagged as like, whoa, there's something for us to kind of do more research into. That seems to be the takeaway from the paper. They're not fully clear on it. It seems to have something to do with this overfitting thing that we've been talking about, but they're, they're going to do more research, I'm sure, into this, this question. 
Yeah, I do think that's one of the interesting findings uh, with regards to it being worse at uh, dealing in multiple languages. It seems like because you're doing instruction tuning on English language and you have the experts that are kind of dealing with slightly more specific specialties, uh, these uh, MOE, mixture of experts, instruction tuning models seem worse than dense. Uh, versions for that, but they didn't really have many other negatives, it seems like. And one last thing I'll note is that we've discussed some papers in the past that have had these sort of general findings, but they have been evaluated on models of like, you know, 1 billion parameters. So it was not too clear whether that holds (laughs) up. Here, they do evaluate these findings with a 32 billion parameter model based on something called FLAN, and they compare it with a 62 billion parameter model that is a dense model. So these are big models, and this is a pretty reasonably general result that I think is, uh, yeah, really quite significant. On to the lightning round. AI tools are designing entirely new proteins that could transform medicine. So we've talked about proteins in the past, of course, with uh, DeepMind's work. This covers some AI tools like RF Diffusion, which are designing custom proteins that have never been produced by evolution. And that uh, allows for the creation of proteins who sought other qualities. And that could be used to make vaccines or therapeutics or other things. So this is sort of an area of research that probably will transition over into you know biomed startups pretty soon. And this is sort of just an overview article from Nature about this. Yeah, this is one of the most exciting application areas for me. I don't know. I'm super biased because my while I did machine learning throughout my PhD, it was in the medical sciences. And so I've just always been fascinated by these things like how your body uh, works. And it's so exciting now that we have machines already today. Like, you know, we talk about how AGI is going to change everything, but like we already today by these narrow, these artificial narrow intelligences that can do things far better than people ever could. Like we've seen with AlphaFold 2, absolutely crushing all humans and other computer benchmarks at um, predicting protein structures. Similarly, these narrow uh, AI applications are capable of doing superhuman things way beyond what we could do. And now... All of a sudden, just in the last couple of years, and on a month-by-month basis, getting dramatic improvements in the capacity for us to be engineering yeah, biomaterials, vaccines, therapeutics that are truly transformative and can maybe even be realized at a fraction of the cost because you're cutting out all of that human research time because humans have pesky things like eating and sleeping. And why don't they just work? Schmucks. <laughs> Yeah. No, totally. And I think one of the, the really interesting things about this is uh, we're seeing example after example, and this is one of them, of the robustness of some of the techniques that are being developed in, for example, computer vision, then being applied to a completely different field. Like this article talks, for example, about how people are using in painting 
to complete proteins. Like basically I you know, have a couple of amino acids and essentially a chunk of a protein and then I inpaint, I fill it in just like it, it was an image. And you know, this, this whole model or one of the models that's the focus of this article is RF diffusion. You know, that's a nod to stable diffusion, the diffusion kind of, uh, not language models, diffusion uh, image generation models that are being used to kind of do the same thing. We're treating protein generation and design as if it's kind of an image related problem and we're finding that it just sort of works like that's sort of wild and the results seem to be really impressive too like i think one of the quotes they had here was somebody saying that you know whereas previously um, computational methods might give you like a one percent success rate in terms of porting protein designs from the simulation into the lab actually making them they're now hitting like 10 to 20 percent and then somebody later in the article said 50 percent is what he's been seeing and so like this is we're talking you know 10 20 50x uh, efficiency boosts on top of previous methods this is i mean to your point john like that this is really changing how people are doing stuff in the lab it's not theoretical it's not just like you know experiments and simulations this is real real lab work that's starting to materialize now yeah, exactly. And uh, to be a little bit more precise, actually, I was uh, not quite accurate. This article is mostly about RF diffusion. So the paper that this is uh, on just actually came out also last week. So the paper here is De Novo Design of Protein Structure and Function with RF Diffusion. There's uh, a lot of artists, uh, uh, a lot of authors. It comes from the Department of Biochemistry and the Institute for Protein Design at the University of Washington. And back in March, they released this software. So this article kind of covers in a pretty easy to understand uh, format this new research and the impact of this new software that people are using. So if you're into that sort of kind of not exactly technical, but also still science-y article, this is quite a good read. Uh, so the next one is another new paper. This was published in Archive, and this is called Sketch a Shape. So it's zero-shot learning again, uh, where uh, you're just you're providing a task without any other examples, and the model is able to take your sketch and turn it into a 3D shape. So we've had these kinds of things for 2D shapes um, in the past. And so now this is going beyond to 3D. And I also, I owe the listeners an apology because um, a couple of stories ago when we were talking about mixture of experts, I saw that it, it was linked to a Hugging Face URL. And so I assumed it was like a Hugging Face open source library. But now I see that Andre and Jeremy put uh, papers that are on the Hugging Face website. And so uh, the mixture of experts thing, I, that probably isn't something, mixture of experts with instruction tuning probably isn't something that Hugging Face has open no, source yet. It's, Maybe it's tomorrow. just a, a thing we do instead of archive <laughs> to, to process it. But yeah, yeah, there's you can now find papers on Hugging Face, turns out. Yeah, I did not even know that. But yeah, so these, so this sketch of shape thing was in archive first. So was the mixture of experts. But yeah, if you prefer the smiling uh, and I don't know, is that face hugging me too much? I don't know. It's been drinking. It's probably okay. Uh, it probably doesn't mean anything. Uh, if you want that extra smiliness as opposed to the blandness of archive, you can check it out on Hugging Face. I never thought of Hugging Face as a substance abuse logo, but give me but some space, man. Yeah, no, you're right. That's definitely what it's saying. <laughs> it is a little aggressive, you could argue, but uh, yeah, I think uh, 3D shape generation is one of these things that hasn't been in the public eye so much in general compared to language models, let's say. 
And it, 3D in general and 3D shape generation is still one of these problems that are much less solved than, let's say, 2D image generation. Similar to video generation, that's also still rough. But there's been a lot of progress. And you know, more and more when you see these uh, meshes, these 3D models being generated by AI, they're getting better and better. So... Oh no, now we have, you know, CG artists and, and other people that will also be impacted by AI in like six months, right? It just keeps happening. So uh, worth worth noting. And, and of course, you can imagine this is really fun. If you can take a sketch and just generate a 3D shape on the other hand, right? It allows people who can do sketching in 2D. Now you don't need to learn CAD tools. You can just directly use that to, let's say, make video game models from sketches, from concept art. So as always, it's like AI is, the AI train is off leash. We're like not an AI train anymore. It's a rocket. Everything is moving super fast. And this is just another example. Well, and I think this as an example of the like the kinds of challenges, the things that remain challenging, like the reason that this still is, it seems to be a data issue. Like there aren't great data sets or tons of there's not tons of data of like sketches and 3D shapes that correspond to those sketches, as you can imagine. And like that's one of the main issues that they you know deal with here is they basically take like a standard computer vision model, they look at the sketch, and then they they use like the embeddings in that image model as the inputs to a 3D generation scheme with a, anyway, VQVAE, it doesn't really matter. But the bottom line is like, once you can turn your sketch into embeddings in a, in a model, now essentially it lives in a plane that is comparable to the plane where you're getting data from other sources, other images. So functionally, you can, you're almost leveraging what the models learned by looking at like images, like photographs of things, except you're, you're using that information to have it create a representation of your sketch. So now you can feed that into a 3D rendering engine and kind of like get around the data limitation issue. So I thought that was yeah, kind of cool and like another workaround that we might see more of. Very cool. And just really quickly, it is also nice how well this story ties from the preceding one, because guess what? When you're trying to um, design proteins, uh, or other biological compounds, those are three-dimensional shapes as well. And so, um, you know, different starting point in this new case, in this case now we're talking about sketches, uh, but in the other case, we're talking about, you know, maybe a genetic sequence or an amino acid sequence and being able to predict the 3D structure from that. So interesting little uh, uh, tie in there. Next story, not too uh, kind of not as exciting, but I think from a technical perspective, kind of, Neat. We have patch and pack. Navit, a vision transformer for any aspect ratio and resolution. So I think this one I want to highlight just from a slightly nerdy way where you might be surprised to know that most computer vision models that work with images and inputs, the way they work for any image is they have a set size and aspect ratio, like a set resolution. And any image you have to resize. So you get into these funny situations where things are trained for like square aspect ratios and you take a wide image and just like squish it. And the model sees that squished, squished image effectively instead of a real image like we would. So that's kind of a funny aspect. And here they showed how you can actually train a model to take the native resolution. So now it can handle any aspect ratio, any resolution without having to resize everything. And in some cases, you also like 
packet with zero values on either side and do these tricks. Uh, so yeah, this is this is a fun little work, I think, from a more technical perspective, and uh, is is different from what is usually done. Nice. And so this next one is from Fortune magazine or, or newspaper for fortune.com, which is your source for all of your great AI neuroscience news. Right. <laughs> um, so yeah, so this article is that scientists just used AI to map a fruit fly's brain. Here is why it's a turning point in neuroscience. And so the fruit fly might seem like a random animal <laughs> to be talking about, but fruit flies, so the species name is Drosophila melanogaster. And in, in, in science, especially in neuroscience, this is a hugely useful um, animal model of the brain. And the reason why is because if you're you know, you might think, oh, well, um, a mouse or a rat uh, or a monkey would be closer to a human brain. If, and if ultimately we're trying to understand how, how brains work, it's probably a lot about like, you know, dealing with neurological problems or psychiatric problems in humans. But the problem is you get closer and closer to humans. There's more and more ethical issues for one, like monkeys are, you know, you, you can't, uh, at least in the US, you don't just put monkeys down after the research is over. You have to then keep the monkey after the experiment alive for, and they could live for dozens of years. Um, and even rats and mice, which maybe people don't have that many warm, fuzzy feelings about, um, although they are really cute um, when they're in a lab. Uh, they're really docile, domesticated. It's not like the New York ones that'll bite your face off. Um, and these... Uh, the, but the, but even with mice and, and rats, you have like relatively long breeding times and expenses, whereas fruit flies are they, like they're breeding every day. Um, so it's really easy to run genetic experiments. Nobody has any ethical qualms about fruit flies at all. I guess maybe Hindus do. Um, and so, yeah, so the fruit fly being really important and it also then is like this starting point. So, you know, we've talked in this episode and on last week in AI, you talk about it all the time, how we're like, okay, you know, we've now solved suddenly 2D image generation and now we're working on 3D image generation. And a year ago, like, you know, you talk about this on air all the time too. A year ago, the 2D image generation was like Mimi as opposed to being photorealistic and it changes really quickly. Well, this is a really important point too here because what the AI model has done as we've started with a fruit fly brain and taken 2D images of the brain slices and combined it into a 3D image block. And yes, a fruit fly's brain is a lot smaller than us, but the technical challenge has now been surmounted, surmounted and now it's maybe not, simply is maybe not the exact right word to use, but it simply as easy as scaling up. And now we just need way more compute to compute, to turn way more slices uh, that we'd need for, say, a human brain to convert that into 3D. It seemed like a really, and maybe you have some insight into this because of your past experience with this, it seems like a, even at that, it was a really painful like process for them. Because like in the, in the article, they were saying like, uh, what was it? It was like, yeah, the, um, using AI to trace neural pathways made the process about 50 to 100 times faster, comma, taking only 30 collective years. Like, it, that 
Like, what? Like, wh- <laughs> is this like 30 grad students working for a year to do this shit? Like, this well, so, yeah, sounds- to, to give a bit of a context, right? This, of course, fruit flies are simple. They're not, they still have 120,000 neurons. And this is a yeah. full map of all those neurons, their types, their connections. So the AI was used to create the segmentations and help speed up the process. Uh, that would usually be done much uh, slower. So it sped things up by apparently like 50 to 100 times, uh, something really significant. Uh, but humans still had to do a lot of work uh, for years to actually finish up. And, and now you can go to actually flywire.ai and explore this connectodome of the brain, AI-segmented and proofed neurons with millions of connections and labels and neurotransmitters. So, yeah, this article is, is kind of neat. It goes into some of the impacts. There's a quote here that uh, there are 40 to 60 labs currently working with a new map, and it's already an extremely valuable tool. So this, I think, plays into the trend we come upon every once in a while, where AI is now just a tool that is used to advance science more quickly uh, beyond just being sort of a subject of science on its own. Progress in other fields is made or enabled by AI, and, and this is a really cool example of that. Yeah. Which is interesting in a couple of ways because artificial neural networks um, were originally so deep learning and everything that that has come out of that transformer architectures, um, all of these AI capabilities, pretty much all of them, like ninety nine percent of them that we end up talking about today, are a result of deep learning, which is artificial neural networks. And those artificial neural networks were actually originally just designed to be able to study neuroscience. They were a model of biological neuroscience uh, starting from the 50s. And so it's really interesting that, yeah, it's kind of come full circle. So like you create these artificial neural networks to study biology, but then they kind of take off on their own, take off this huge life of their own that's transforming the world dramatically and then using them back to point on neuroscience. And then just another cool point there related relating the artificial to the biological is that um, when we talk about this connectome being mapped in the fruit fly, all of these connections between the 120,000 neurons, for people who aren't biological neuroscience experts out there, but do know deep learning, the analogy there is that this is a map, not just of now knowing like the architecture of, oh, I've got, you know, this many dense layers and this many artificial neurons per dense layer, but you actually know all of the connections between all of the individual artificial neurons. So it's like knowing all the weights um, in, uh, yeah, in, in a deep learning model. So, so that was something I was curious about, John, like, is it that they know the weights or that they know the connections like that? There yeah. Are so, but the, those are kind of like, So the biological brain is way more complex than an artificial neural network model. Um, So, but yeah, because my understanding was they aren't weights per se, right? There's like (laughs) yeah, 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 chemicals that go between neurons, and there's like a weight sort of. But I guess it's complicated, right? Yeah, uh, there's a lot of data in this. Yeah, so so I mean, Jeremy makes a really good point there that like don't take what I just said. That was a really simple like caricature of what's yeah, I mean, going on. It's, it it but, makes sense. Yeah. Like I, I, I exactly agree. I was trying to understand that myself as I was reading it. It was like, 
could like are we talking effectively about something that would allow you to simulate the brain but it seems like it's a more so, structural thing I, I, so i think there is a so it is structural but it's it's a very refined structure so it's so with this connectome you're able to say okay like you know these brain cells over here are connected to these brain cells over there um and so, because you have all these kinds of long, like, you know, even a fruit fly, yeah, 120,000 neurons, but it can do a lot. Like it's flying around, it's looking at stuff, it's tasting stuff, it's learning stuff. Like it's crazy the, number, the amount of stuff it can do with 120,000 neurons. Um, and um, it's actually, it's even crazy. So like the, like the simplest neuron model is um, this very simple flatworm called Synorhabditis elegans, which is has only 300 um neurons in it and you can actually you can map exactly how each of those are connected to, to each other and how they change as they learn but this kind of thing at this kind of scale with 120,000 in a fruit fly you can't i mean at least today you can't know how strong the connections are even if you can see kind of anatomically that there's a connection there's still this piece that andre was alluding to there of like you don't know how like primed the connections are between them and how easily the chemicals are going to flow across, which is how learning occurs. So as you learn something, two neurons, all of a sudden, well, I more than two, but like for a really simple example, they're the, like the chemical flows between from one to the other over this like gap between them, the synapse is, uh, is, is, is happening more. It's like primed to happen more. And so, yeah, so there's, there's all kinds of ways that a human brain is more complex. And I've used this in the past to try to rebut Jeremy on like how just because we have 2 trillion uh, parameters in a artificial neural network, it doesn't mean that like we're going to have um, human level cognition because there's all these other things. Like it's not even just neurons in a biological brain. It's all of the support cells as well that are turning out to play a bigger and bigger role in transmitting information and allowing learning. However, with everything that's happened in the last year, I, I'm not going to put up a fight against you against, on the stuff, Jeremy, anymore. It's like it doesn't, you know, it's the emergent properties of these huge artificial neural networks. I mean, I don't think we need to get caught up like I did in the past on the number of neurons. It's that this this is something different. This is even though it's loosely mimicking the way or it's inspired by the way the brain works, these deep learning systems, these transformers, all the AI systems that we're seeing today, it's it's a new kind of intelligence that emer that is emerging um, it's different from ours. And so we shouldn't, there's no point in like just counting how many connections there are and saying, oh, there's not enough. Yeah, I think it's important to, it's a good opportunity right now to make sure to note that for listeners. Uh, sometimes when people say neural networks, they call the things that make it up neurons because, you know, neural networks are just combinations of these little computational units uh, that sometimes are called neurons. Those bear really almost no similarity to brain neurons. Each brain neuron can be modeled as its own neural net effectively. So it's it's there's really not much sort of actual inspiration. It's it's a very high level kind of model. The outcomes may be kind of similar. So, but just that's a good thing to know from a technical perspective that it's it's a very very loose model. A lot of the debate also happens at the level of like, what are the abstractions that actually drive learning? Like, is it like, is, is the level of abstraction of a neural network good enough for learning purposes, for making powerful systems? And, and in fact, is it possible that it may be in fact even more efficient than the corresponding uh, mapping in, in a biological system? It's, it's actually really hard to know because like you can do 
like, you know, backpropagation and calculate gradients through the structure in a way that the human brain or kind of fuzzy biological systems can't, but then there is extra complex, like, it's just really hard to know. And at the end of the day, like, I think the only appropriate response is everybody throws their hands up in the air and they go drinking together. And uh, that's kind of how it goes. <laughs> and speaking of really hard to know, moving on to policy and safety, we have what are the chances of an AI apocalypse? We just got a bit carried away talking about neuroscience, and now I'm sure we won't get carried away about tech. Yeah, <laughs> about <no> this. <laughs> uh, with Jeremy and John here, but yeah, I'll leave it to Jeremy and John, and John maybe you can summarize this article, and we can we can chat about this. Yeah, so this is a story in the Economist that is based on some new research that I thought was really fascinating, and so you know I. I this was just published in the last week. And so knowing that I was coming on the show, I really wanted to talk about this uh, with uh, Jeremy on air in particular. And so this ties back, interestingly, to comments that Jeremy was making with respect to the mixture of expert models earlier. I think it was Jeremy. It might have been Andre. I actually am not 100% sure which of you it was earlier in this episode. But well, so <clears throat> drunk from breakfast. <laughs> one of you was talking about how... Um, these mixture of expert models, how oh, it was Jeremy. Yeah, it was Jeremy. How, talking about how the individual submodel, that expert, can become overtrained on their own particular area. And that's exactly what this research, research is showing mm, yeah, in humans. Yeah, 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 so you're yeah. making that analogy. And so what we have here is that AI experts um, dramatically. Oh, well, I, we don't know if it's an overestimate. They, they estimate that the risk of catastrophic risk due to AI or extinction risk due to AI is many, they think it's many times more likely than these people called super forecasters. So these super forecasters are interesting if you haven't heard of them before. So super forecasters are people who are, who are demonstrably able to make good predictions about the future in any domain. And so what they've done, these people, these super forecasters have learned a lot about cognitive biases that we have, and they've learned how to um, override their natural in inclinations to have these cognitive biases so that they can treat um, factual matter more factually. And also probably it's to do with like gathering the right facts and asking the right questions. And so, yeah, so these super forecasters have a really great track record of, of predicting events, some, sometimes even many years into the future. Um, so they don't know as much about AI as AI experts. But so there's this really interesting yeah, study just showing that. So for example, um, so they defined specifically um, catastrophic risk of AI as being a, an event where... Um, I can't remember the exact number. Uh, where a very large, you know, like ten percent of humans are impacted. Like ten percent of humans die in a catastrophic event um, due to AI. And then extinction is a scenario where fewer than five thousand people remain on the planet. And then, so the uh, the domain experts, the AI experts, think that there's about a twelve percent chance of catastrophe um, and a three percent chance of extinction due to AI. Whereas the super forecasters, it's a way smaller. It's uh, a 2% chance for catastrophic risk and like a third of a 1% chance for extinction risk. Um, 
And so, yeah, so I thought that this was an interesting uh, study. Uh, I'm sure Jeremy has a lot of thoughts about it. No, I mean, I, I look, I think it's a, a really important kind of bit of meta thinking around this whole problem space, right? We always have to manage our psychology when we look at these sorts of problems. And I think it's a critical piece of the puzzle to put in place. Like, I, I definitely agree there are a lot of cases where this has happened. I think it's interesting, like the kinds of mistakes that AI people have made historically have tended, though, to like downplay certainly the capabilities of AI systems. So, you know, you look at analogous research where people are, are predicting by what year will we have what level of capability? And consistently what you see is like people will give median predictions of like 20 years from now and then it happens like two weeks later. And like this literally has happened on like especially math related and coding related exercises. Um, and so like kind of breaking this down into different components, I'd be really curious to see like what like what are the specific um, ways in which the super forecasters disagree, like the specific arguments that they find kind of suspicious, that they're skeptical of. Because there definitely is a kind of AI doomer person who doesn't quite know why they're upset about the whole AI thing. And they have very generic sounding arguments, many of which I would personally disagree with. Um, but I do think it's the case that like AI risk is an unusually technical thing. Uh, the the best arguments for it come from a group of people that is so insanely niche. It's like there's literally 200 of them working in like OpenAI and DeepMind and Anthropic, and they do have access to like the cutting edge models and have hands-on experience with them in a way that I suspect super forecasters, even very experienced ones, might struggle to to get. Um, but I, I think it's a very valid point. Like we, we've got to mind the metapsychology. Like I, I might be, um, uh, actually, I might be curious about the sample as well of AI researchers that they pulled, uh, because twelve percent actually sounds very low to me compared to what I hear when I talk to people at Anthropic uh, and OpenAI and DeepMind. You'll hear people there who have estimates on the order of fifty or even eighty percent. Um, maybe that's even more to the point that's being made in this article. That in fact, you know, they're so like completely immersed in this area that they've lost themselves. Um, I, I find the evidence compelling personally, but that doesn't at all do anything for this argument, which I think is very valid and interesting. Yeah. And so a few key things here is that this is a median estimate. So there could be some people with those 50s and 80s in there. Um, so this is just the median. Um, and then also I should have mentioned that um, this is specifically the probability of this event occurring by 2100 by the year 2100. Um, and so just to give those other bits of detail. And then for a lot of those questions that you're asking, Jeremy, I haven't dug into the actual paper. So if people want to get into it, it's Carger et al. And it's uh, Forecasting Existential Risks, Evidence from a Long-Run Forecasting Tournament. Um, and yeah, so the interesting thing is, so, that, so you know, talking about this as a forecasting tournament, um, so they're, they're now trying to break this into like smaller steps where we're predicting like, AI related risks, um, nice. you know, that we can look into just a few years from now and to see how the, the super forecasters perform against the AI experts. So some of your questions might be answered around that. Um, and then one final point that I want to make sure we get in there, um, before we move on to the next, uh, uh topic is that, um, so because this is an AI podcast, all I've talked about is the AI, um, risks, the AI catastrophe risks or AI extension risks, but, um, this study extended to other areas as well. So uh, nuclear risks, engineered pathogens, natural pathogens, and non-anthropogenic um, 
causes of catastrophe or extinction. Cause so that could be like, um, a meteor hitting, uh, earth or a volcano or something. And a really interesting thing is that across both the super forecasters and the domain experts, by far <laughs> the biggest extinction risk of all of those was AI. Yay. So, so that, <laughs> by the way, that, that I, I think is, is just weird um, because I think it's actually difficult to make an argument that we're not going to be dealing with like super engineered pathogens that could wipe out basically a large chunk of life on earth within the next five years. Like, I think it's really difficult to be like 97% sure that that is going to be the case, given what we've seen in AI so far. Like, if you just listen to this podcast alone, where you're like, okay, like we're creating designer proteins, we're like 50xing overnight, like the efficiency of like protein generation and so on, you stack those things up along with any number of other things we've seen in the last like 10 years, say three years. And like, I think it's quite plausible, like on the order of like 20% surely that someone like I wouldn't bet against like someone in the next at least 10 years putting together a crazy pathogen. Like we have the, the COVID scenario that happened. We, we have all the tech that's coming off the line. It's like, I just like yeah. generally I'm surprised by those numbers. I think, I think that's another thing that is a good finding from this paper is we don't just include the median. They also have the uncertainty bounds, right? And one note about AI is that they have pretty wide uncertainty bounds. So like for AI catastrophe, the uh, domain experts vary from 4% to 18.5, and the median is 12. So you end up with this wide variety where people aren't really certain. With nuclear catastrophe, even with engineered pathogens, that's something that's been possible for a while uh, and is conceivable. With AI, we just really, there's many questions that we just cannot know. So uh, I think that is something that I find also quite uh, agreeable, personally. And with that, uh, you know, fun topic out of the way, as we usually talk about human extinction, let's go back to the present. Uh, we have the story, China finalizes first of its kind rules governing generative AI services like G uh, ChatGPT. That's pretty much the story. Uh, so, yeah, there's now rules, uh, this article notes, that if a generative AI service generates illegal content, the provider must take measures to stop generating, improve the algorithm, and report the material to the relevant uh, authority. Seems like, again, China is moving pretty fast on regulating and, and ruling on this. Uh, this is from the uh, Cyberspace Administration of China, and this law will come into effect on August 15th. So mark your calendars, folks. August 15th, new regs. Um, yeah, no, I mean, it, it's uh, it's interesting that there is this argument, <laughs> tying this back to existential risk and all of that good stuff. There's been this argument that like, hey, maybe the commies in China, uh, because they, they're cracking down so hard on, you know, freedom of speech and all these fun things, like they, they cannot allow companies to just pump out random stuff in chatbots that talk about the Tiananmen Square massacre or any number of other, uh, you know, the Uyghur Muslim atrocities and all that. Um, and so they're kind of forced to solve some important parts of the alignment problem, like just to guarantee that this sort of thing doesn't happen and slip through. Um, and it's sort of an open question as to how feasible a lot of these restrictions are going to be for companies 
Right now, these regulations apply to private companies. Notably, they do not apply to the government building its own AI systems. So like pretty consistent with the way China seems to like to do things. Uh, so one, one set of rules for the private sector and an, another one for government. Um, but uh, yeah, anyway, kind of interesting. People will have to get a, a license to operate generative AI services. Certainly something that we've heard talked about you know, in the West when Sam Altman pushed for licensing regimes for um, generative AI here. Uh, anyway, all, all kind of interesting, uh, interesting stuff. Yeah, and illegal, of course, does also apply that you know you various censorship. So this is a form of censorship. Uh, it also says that generative AI services must adhere to the core values of socialism. So uh, kind of tracks with what you might expect, I guess. On to the lightning round. First, we have 27% of jobs at high risk from AI revolution, says OECD. So yet another survey about the economic impact of AI. In this case, uh, it says that jobs at the highest risk for automation make up 27% of the labor force on average, uh, with Eastern European countries most exposed. Um, yeah, it kind of tracks with a lot of other predictions. There's a, a wide spectrum of them, and it's kind of hard to say. But uh, the clear outcome is a large proportion, like 27%, is still a lot of jobs. And uh, this is another kind of data point in that, I guess. And then we have U.S. senators to get classified White House briefing Tuesday. Now, Tuesday was actually like a little while ago. Um, but they've, yeah, so they've now received this briefing. It was organized by Chuck Schumer, who is the Senate Democratic leader, and he is kind of low-key famous for being really into this AI stuff. Um, it was done at a SCIF, uh, that's a sensitive compartmented information facility at the U.S. Capitol, so all very kind of quiet and on the down low. And the briefers were, the, among others, the Director of National Intelligence, uh, the Deputy Secretary of Defense, the White House uh, OSTP, the Office of Science Technology Policy Director, uh, and the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency Director. At least those are the ones we know about. I, I assume it's possible there may have been others. And yeah, Schumer's really been all in on what he calls um, you know, comprehensive legislation to deal with AI. He wants to find different ways to accelerate the legislative process around AI. That's been a big theme for him. He's called that like kind of slow moving pace of legislation relative to the technology. And so, yeah, this seems like another move in that direction. And uh, he certainly seems to be leading the way. And speaking of the U.S. government, the next story is that U.S. FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, opens investigation into open AI. So this is an investigation based on claims on violating consumer protection laws and putting personal reputations and data at risk. The FTC has demanded records from OpenAI regarding how it addresses these risks, uh, in particular, generating false and misleading statements about individuals. Um, I'm not sure how much of a big deal this is. This seems, you know, probably maybe inevitable given the impact. The CEO of OpenAI stated that the company will cooperate with the FTC, and of course, emphasized that this is, you know, not supposed to happen to people. And now, if you ask ChatGPT, I think it has been trained to say that, you know. I may say wrong things. I can't comment on particular individuals. Uh, so this is 
one of those things we've also discussed, I think having a lawsuit uh, uh, for uh, libel about ChatGPT. So this is very much touching on that kind of aspect of it. Yeah, I think just one last kind of context note too. So under Lena Khan, who's the new head of the, FT, uh, of the FTC, uh, I believe that they're now 0 for 4 on big tech antitrust cases. They recently had this like uh, attempt to block a Microsoft Activision Activision acquisition, and so uh, you know it's, it's just sort of starting to look a little um, a little rough for the FTC right now. Maybe they're biting off more than they can chew with with some of these uh, proceedings, but hard to know. And last up, we have the UK universities drop guiding principles on generative AI. So these are uh, 24 universities. They're Russell Group Research Intensive uh, Universities, and they have signed up on this code with five principles. So the five guiding principles say that the university will support both students and staff to become AI literate. Staff should be equipped to help students to use generative AI tools appropriately. The sector will adapt teaching and assessment to incorporate the ethical use of AI ensured equal access to it. Universities will ensure academic integrity is upheld and share best practices as the technology evolves. So it doesn't seem... You know, super specific, but uh, I guess it's good to have a general direction to head in. And some of these, uh, you know, are are kind of interesting, such as incorporating education on the ethical use of AI and ensuring access to it. Okay, and we are running a bit over, so we're going to finish up quick. The last section is synthetic media and art and the big story here is that uh, the uh, SAG AFTRA. The SAG-AFTRA Union of Actors is on strike, and there's been a bunch of coverage. Uh, one of these stories is producers allegedly sought rights to replicate extras using AI forever for just $200. There's also another uh, kind of overview article that says that Hollywood's groundbreaking AI proposal for actors sounds like a nightmare. So the proposal is saying that AI should scan background actors and own their likeness for any project in perpetuity without consent or compensation. Uh, now there is, yeah, this the labor union SAG-AFTRA has joined the Writers Guild of America in, on strike uh, just last week. So it's a big deal. Uh, like, it's ongoing and there's a lot of negotiation about this AI component, of course, uh, of scanning and using people's likeness. Unfortunately, we don't have time to get super into it, but I'm sure this will be a story that develops and we'll have a lot more coverage in the coming weeks. So, John, how was it? Uh, I, do you still <laughs> like a podcast having co-hosted it? <laughs> Having seen how the it was, sausages made. It was really awesome. I, I don't know what I'm going to do when this episode comes out now in a couple of days. And I, like, I, I guess I'll listen to I it. I guess you won't be listening to the show. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, um, funny. Yeah, no, it's it's been amazing. I really appreciate you guys taking the time to have me on the show. Uh, you know, I know that there's you know a little bit of extra process getting me looped in, and uh, and then yeah, thanks to the listeners for letting for for listening to my bits, and I, I might have extended the show a little bit as well, but hopefully you found it interesting. So yeah, so thanks listeners, and thanks Andre and Jeremy for giving me this great opportunity. 
yeah thanks john it, it was uh super fun and uh, yeah as you said thank you to listeners for tuning in as always please share and review and subscribe and keep tuning in <laughs>